Good morning, Calvary. We've finished our introductor, our introduction to the New Testament and to the Gospels. Today we start our more specific study of the words and events of the Gospels themselves. And we start with the birth narrative of Jesus. And the account of Jesus' birth begins by describing the days before Jesus was born, which God announced what he was about to do. That's the subject of our lesson today, entitled The Messiah's Messengers. Last week, we considered certain attacks sometimes made against the New Testament, especially the charge that the 27 books of the New Testament were arbitrarily decided. No good reason why certain Gospels, like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas, were rejected, and no good reason why our four Gospels and the other New Testament books were included. But after hearing the presentation from Brian Edwards, and after looking ourselves at some of the excerpts from the two rejected Gospels, we see that this objection that, or this objection and, and many related to it have no basis in reality. There's absolutely no basis for this criticism. We can trust our 27 New Testament books to be God's only revelation beyond the Old, beyond the Old Testament. By the way, if you missed the video from last week, or if you'd like to watch it again or share it with somebody, it is available online. You can go to Answers in Genesis website, just type in the title of the video, Y66. Or you can just copy the URL that I have displayed on this slide. So answersingenesis.org slash media slash video slash Bible slash Y hyphen 66. But now let's turn to the birth narrative of Jesus as given in the Gospel of Luke. We are perhaps familiar with this section of scripture since it is often read at Christmas time. But we must beware the great danger of familiar texts, texts that feel familiar to us because we often think we know them better than we actually do, and we stop paying attention to what they actually say. So we don't want to do that. The birth narrative is in Luke 1 is unique among the Gospels. Luke is the only one who tells us about these events. And so we want to answer the following questions today. Why does Luke record these events for us? How does their inclusion connect with the overall purpose of Luke's gospel? And how should our lives be changed from what we read in the beginning part of Luke 1? Here's our plan for answering those questions. We're going to move through our passage. We'll read and observe Luke 1, 5 to 25. Then we'll read and observe the second section, Luke 1, 26 to 45. We'll work through the interpretation of those passages and questions that arise from them, and then we'll consider application for ourselves. Let's pray before we continue. Our great God, thank you for this time, this opportunity to hear more from your word. I pray that you'd give me the ability to explain it and explain it well and accurately. I pray that you'd help the people to understand it and help us all, Lord, to apply it, to be impacted by it. Please do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. That'll put you, if you're using the Pew Bible, on page 1018. Luke chapter 1. Now, wait for that slide. We're going to start in Luke 1, 5, but before we read, let's remind ourselves of this book's background, as revealed in the first four verses and from what we studied in the book as a whole. This is by Luke, Gentile Christian, physician, associate of Paul, writes the most excellent Theophilus, also a Gentile Christian, and Luke writes, so that Theophilus and those like him will know the exact truth of what they had been taught regarding Jesus Christ. Both the gospel, this gospel, and the book of Acts are committed to one purpose. They, uh, they are intent on giving the exact truth about Jesus. And why, again, might Gentile Christians, many of whom were saved under the ministry of Paul, have needed to know such truth more exactly? What kind of issues were they facing where knowing the truth about Jesus and his message is very important for them to know? Yeah, Rob. Okay, that's certainly true. Just seeing the connection between Old Testament and the New Testament, how Jesus fulfills prophecies, and knowing what Jesus has done is going to be beneficial for all believers. Certainly that's true. 
But Luke writes with a specific bent, and there are certain issues that Gentile Christians were facing uniquely that Luke's gospel seeks to answer. What were you going to say, Steve? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So both those things are certainly true. Thanks, Steve. We have the same idea that Paul has where he's showing that the Gentiles are included in the same salvation as the Jews, that that was um, uh, that there isn't a need for Gentiles to become Jews. Remember, that's what Paul deals with in Galatians. These Judaizers saying, you got to be circumcised. you got to keep the law. You basically have to come, become a Jew if you're going to be saved. Gentiles are hearing that. They're being uh, persecuted sometimes by the Romans or by the Jews. They are dealing with false teaching, just as you were talking about, Steve. They're people who may be making other claims about Jesus, or Jesus wasn't really a man, or Jesus wasn't really God, or you can believe in Jesus and then live however you want. We know that they, Paul was dealing with that in the books of Corinthians. And even the Apostle John was dealing with that in his letters. So there's, there's reasons why Gentiles, as kind of newcomers to the truth and newcomers to the gospel, they need assurance, they need greater confidence in what actually happened, so that they know that they're included and so that they actually know what is the true message. And they know how they're supposed to live in light of the gospel. And we, so we see these, these issues in the other books of the New Testament. And so I argued, both in Luke and Acts, that Luke gives his gospel, or he shows that the gospel according to Paul, under which many of these Gentiles were saved, is the same gospel according to Jesus, and that God's plan for salvation is for all men. Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave or free, formerly religious or formerly irreligious, and it has never changed. That has always been God's plan. Salvation for all men has always been by faith alone, producing holy fruit of repentance. That is a life of obedience to Jesus. When we specifically talked about the four Gospels, how each writer gives his own emphasis, I characterize Luke's gospel emphasis in this way. Jesus is the man who came to save all men. Jesus is the man who came to save all men. And so that ties in with Acts, but that's unique to Luke's gospel. So we want to keep that background information in mind so we don't read these passages as if they're just random accounts of interesting parts of Jesus' life. No, these are specially included because they somehow connect with the background and purpose of Luke that we previously looked at. So we want to see how. How are these narratives connected to that purpose, showing God's plan of salvation is for all men and it hasn't changed? You can be confident in it. All right, so let's actually start reading our first section, Luke 1, 5 to 25. Luke 1, verse 5 to 25, and please follow along as I read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. 
for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me, to take away my disgrace among men. All right, let's begin our look at this section with simple observations. We're in the days of Herod, that is, or the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, there are multiple Herods in the Bible, but this is Herod the Great. He is an Edomite, and he is a client king of Rome, ruling the whole area of Palestine. It's after his death that the land of Judea becomes parceled out among his sons and among other Roman governors. Herod's sons are also named Herod, hence the confusion with some of the other Herods. Notice the description of Zacharias and Elizabeth. We hear that they are from the priestly clan of Aaron, both of them. They are righteous, they are old, and they are barren. No children. Now, what was barrenness considered to be a sign of in those days? We've seen this in other lessons. Barrenness was seen as a sign of God's disfavor. It's a sign of shame. It's a sign of judgment. And there are verses in the Old Testament that link barrenness for Israel with God's judgment. You turn away from God, this is one of the things that's going to happen. Your people, your, your wives are going to be barren. But where else in the Bible have we seen righteous or especially called ones from God, but they are also barren. <clears throat> Someone said, what was that? Say it again, please. Yeah, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah. Who else? Hannah and Elkanah. Yeah, Hannah was barren. And we could also add Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Rachel. Actually, the first three patriarchs all had wives who had uh, an issue of barrenness. And then Hannah and Elkanah, too. These were not judged people. This was, um, they were specially covenantal with God, and um, they were righteous. So um, public feeling, though, about barrenness was still very much, oh, that's a sign of God's disfavor. And so we see that in verse 25. She says, my, the Lord is going to take away my shame. Now, Zacharias is performing his priestly service, and he's chosen by lot to burn incense in the temple. Now, when was incense burned in the temple? It was burned every day, twice a day. That was actually one of the provisions of the law for the priest to do. There was to be incense burning before the Lord perpetually, right in the morning and at twilight. So at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, there was to be incense lit and burned before the Lord. Now, where was the incense burned? Uh, yes, Rob. That's right. It's right in front of the veil. And you can see it in the little picture here. The 
altar of incense, that somewhat small altar, golden altar, it's right before the veil, right before the Holy of Holies. That's where the incense was to be burned. Now, this burning, this perpetual burning of the incense was a uh, sign of God's glory, the glory due to him. It was a sign of atonement. The incense had a, a somewhat of a covering function. And Israel's sins were symbolically being covered by God. And incense is also linked with prayer, especially in the New Testament. Now, there were many priests at this time, so not every priest was needed to serve in the temple or even to burn the incense. But Zacharias just happened to be chosen to be the one to burn incense in the temple on this particular day. In fact, he may have been doing it for the whole week. Usually, priestly service was for a week. Now, this was a pretty regular event at the temple, but not a regular event for a priest. Not every priest would get to burn incense, even in his lifetime. Zacharias would have considered this occasion a high point in his priestly ministry and was probably preparing for a very worshipful and awe-filled experience. And he sure got one. Now, Zacharias goes in to burn incense, probably in the morning, and notice what he sees. An angel of God standing right next to the altar, to the right of the altar of incense. Now, what was this angel? Now, remember that the Bible mentions different kinds of angelic beings. You have the cherubim, the seraphim, there's also an archangel. But the term angel itself, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it simply means messenger. Now, often, delivering messages is exactly what God's angels do. And though angels can be beautiful and even dazzling in appearance in the Bible, the Bible usually describes angels as appearing like men often men wearing white. And contrary to centuries of Christian religious art and educational material, no wings. No wings on most angelic beings when they appear in the Bible. And we're not given a description of the angel here, but he probably appeared like the angels normally appeared as a man wearing white. Whatever his appearance, the fact that he was suddenly there next to the altar, no one else was in the temple, no one else was supposed to be in the temple besides Zacharias, fills Zacharias with fear. But also typical, or that, that is typical in the Bible. When people meet angels, they're often afraid. But also typical is the angelic response. And it's the first thing we hear the angels say to Zacharias, do not be afraid. This is not a meeting for you to be afraid, Zacharias. This is a good meeting. And he also gives a reason. Why shouldn't you be afraid? For your petition has been heard. Your request, the request you made to God, has been heard. What request? Well, let's consider the rest of the passage. Elizabeth, I mean, uh, the angel continues to say, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. John, by the way, comes from the Hebrew Yohanan, meaning graced by Yahweh, or Yahweh is gracious. This is the name determined by the angel, determined by God, that his son is to have. Angel also says, you will have joy and gladness at his birth. Many will rejoice with you. He will be great. He will drink no wine or alcohol. And we see a link to other parts of the Bible here. Who else in the Old Testament was forbidden from drinking wine or alcohol? That was part of the Nazarite vow. Now, that was not usually intended as a permanent thing. It was a temporary way of showing worship and devotion to God. But there were... One person, maybe two people, who in the Bible were permanent Nazarites. Does anybody know who? Samson was certainly one. Perhaps Samuel as well. Samuel, or Samson, he has the full Nazarite description. No wine, no liquor, no cutting his hair. Samuel was only said to have, not have his hair cut. When Hannah prays to God, she says, I'll, if you would let me have a kid, I will devote him to you and a razor will never come near his head. She doesn't say anything about wine, but that may have been implied. So there's a connection here with those Old Testament people and the Nazarite vow. He also says, the angel also says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He will turn many in Israel back to God, and he will go before God as, as a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, this should sound very familiar. Where have we recently heard this language in the Old Testament? Say that again, please. That's right, Malachi. 
This is from the, one of the actually last things said in Malachi, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. So the angel saying, John, is going to be fulfillment of that very late prophetic word. Now talk about amazing promises. Imagine you received a message like this from God about your own kid before he was even conceived. Isn't this exactly what you would want in a kid? Wow, my kid's going to grow up to be great. He's not only going to be uh, great, but he's going to be very uh, used by God. He's going to draw my people back to God. This is amazing. And not only is this great news for Zacharias and Elizabeth, but it's great news for Israel. Because that means that those promises given by God in the Old Testament, they're about to be fulfilled. They're on their way to fulfillment. God is going to come. Because here's the forerunner. But notice Zacharias' response. How will I know that this is true? Since my wife and I are pretty old. That is to say, what will be the sign to me that what you say will really happen? Now, where else have we in the Bible seen someone questioning or laughing at a promise about a son being born due to old age? Exactly. Back to Abraham and Sarah. There's a lot of parallels here. But both of them laughed, you may remember, when they heard that they were going to have a kid in their old age. Now notice the angel's somewhat surprising response to Zacharias. He basically says, let me tell you who I am. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was, I was sent to speak this good news to you. <clears throat> Gabriel, by the way, means strong man of God, or God is my strength. So he gives him that name. The angel, though, does give a sign along with this rebuke. The sign is, Zacharias, you will be silent until the child is born. So you'll get your sign. But why this sign? The angel says, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias comes back outside. People realize he's seen a vision from God. He finishes his priestly service, which I feel like must have been interesting. He had to continue doing his job for probably the whole week before he went back home as a mute priest. But he goes home, and soon Elizabeth is pregnant. She decides to seclude herself, saying, God has looked upon me favorably to take away my disgrace, to take away the shame that comes with barrenness among my people. So we've made our observations on this passage, but before we interpret this section of text, it will be useful if we combine it with observations in the next passage. So let's move on to the next one. We're now going to read verses 26 to 45 of the same chapter, where we'll see another announcement. Let's read. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me? that the mother of my Lord would come to me. 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. All right, let's observe this section. It says here that we're in the sixth month. Sixth month of what? Or sixth month since what? Yeah, Elizabeth's pregnancy. We're not talking about the sixth month of Herod's reign. This is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So we not only move forward a little bit in time, but we also move in location. We move from Jerusalem in Judea to Nazareth. That is from central Israel to the northeast section of Galilee. From a prestigious religious center of the Jews to a less respectable town filled with Gentiles. All right, this is a Gentile region. In Nazareth, we hear of Mary and Joseph, and who, rather than being descendants of Aaron, they are, notice, descendants of David. Right, it says specifically here, Joseph is a descendant of David, but we'll see later in the book of Luke, Mary also is a descendant of David, both of them. Mary is a virgin, engaged to Joseph. Now, remember that engagement in ancient Jewish culture was way more serious than engagement today. Today, people can break off engagements without too much trouble, but in Israel, you had to get a formal divorce to break an engagement. Engagement was like being married, except you didn't live together and you didn't consummate that marriage. It was very, very serious. This is Joseph and Mary's situation. They're basically contracted in marriage. Now, the marriageable age for young virgins at this time in both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture was about 12 to 15 years old. I know that sounds very, very young to us, but that's when someone became a woman in the eyes of the people that, of that time. That was when a woman could bear children. So Mary was probably quite young, early teens. Now, according to certain rabbinic writings, Jewish men were expected to marry at about age 18 or even 20. So Joseph, too, was probably a young man, though a little older than Mary. Gabriel appears to Mary presumably privately at her house, and he greets her, calling her favored one. That is, the one who has received grace, unmerited favor from God. Now, this greeting, by the way, Hail Mary, full of grace, that would be another way to translate it, is where we see the phrase in Catholicism. And that's one of the things that uh, Catholics repeat. That comes from the Vulgate translation of this passage. Jerome, in the late 300s A.D., he used the phrase full of grace to describe the word that is translated for us, favored one. Full of grace is not a necessarily an inaccurate translation, but it's unfortunate because it leaves open the idea that Mary herself has grace to give others rather than she has received grace from God. So you know, that plays into the Catholic theology we know today. But she has received grace. She is full of grace received from God. And Gabriel also tells Mary, the Lord is with you. That's another way of saying that you have the Lord's favor. Now note Mary's reaction. She's very perplexed. She's continually in a state of pondering and wondering what kind of salutation or what kind of greeting this is. What does it mean to me that an angel has appeared and said thus to me? But again, we get an angelic reassurance. Do not be afraid. Why? For you have found favor with God. Wow, third time we've, we've heard this idea. You have found favor. God is showing you unmerited favor. Now let's catalog the rest of this initial message. What's, what's involved with this favor from God? Well, you will conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, Jesus is our version of the Greek, Jesus. And when it comes from the Hebrew, Joshua or Yeshua, which means salvation. For Yahweh saves, says this will be the name of the son you will bear, and he will be great, and he will be called the son of the Most High. God will give him, your son, the throne of his forefather David, and he, <clears throat> your son, will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will be forever. Now again, talk about stunning revelation. The word of Zacharias, the word to Zacharias about John was amazing. You would have been floored if you were in that situation and you heard that kind of word from God. But this is even more amazing. Imagine you were to hear this from God. Your son, who isn't even conceived yet, he 
he is going to be the son of the most high. He's going to rule Israel forever. What an incredible child to have. What great news for Mary and for Israel. But Mary also has a question. How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. Notice Gabriel's answer. This time there is no rebuke. Just an explanation and even a sign. Gabriel tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will cause her to become pregnant with divine power. And notice the effect. Notice the word for. For that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Because he's going to be born in this special way, he will be called the Son of God. Gabriel is telling Mary, you will become pregnant without any man's influence. And that is why your child will be called holy and the son of God. By the way, it's not noted by Luke here. It is in Matthew. But where was there a prophecy about a virgin being with child and that that child would be called Emmanuel? The book of Isaiah chapter Chapter 7, Isaiah seven fourteen. That's where we see the virgin birth prophecy. But Gabriel also gives a, a sign, to, uh, a way to be encouraged in her belief. He says, by the way, your relative Elizabeth is also miraculously pregnant. She who was previously barren. She's already in her sixth month. And then a final explanation. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, unlike Zacharias, who, due to his muteness, couldn't respond to the angel, Mary responds, and notice what she says. She says, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Or literally, you are looking at the female slave of the Lord. She confesses herself to be God's slave. And she says, may it be done to me according to your word. Let these things happen just as you have said. So after this incredible announcement, where does Mary go? To her relative Elizabeth. Goes to one of the cities of Judah where, where Elizabeth lives. And upon Mary's entry, and at the sound of her greeting to Elizabeth, John leaps in Elizabeth's womb out of joy. And Elizabeth prophesies by the Holy Spirit, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How is it that I get to have you, the mother of my Lord, to visit me? And then notice the last statement from Elizabeth. Blessed is she who believed in the fulfillment of what God announced to her. Okay. Having made all these observations, let's start asking some interpretation questions. What was the petition of Zacharias that Gabriel declared God had heard? It must be a prayer for the child. That makes the most sense in the passage because he says immediately, right after your petition has been heard and... Your wife will bear a son. Your wife will bear you a son. So God is answering that prayer, even that prayer that seemed impossible. What does it mean that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? Want to give it a shot, Rob? Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that. So you mentioned that it could, could mean salvation, but there were people filled with the Holy Spirit who weren't saved. Those are both true. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit's coming is often linked with salvation. But we do know that the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is also connected with empowerment, empowerment for ministry on God's behalf. I think we're probably looking at both things here. That we're having John being empowered, but there's also the Lord saving John by putting his spirit into him at, at a young age. I think this is certainly very, a very unique thing. How is that possible in a child without full understanding? Well, that's a miraculous work of God. And it's a unilateral work. God didn't ask John for permission. God didn't respond to John's will. God just puts his spirit there. But we can already see that spirit manifesting itself because what does baby John do? He leaps in the womb for joy. Because he recognizes by the Holy Spirit that his Lord, Son of God, has just come into the same house. 
I think there's an element of salvation here. Certainly there's an element of empowerment for ministry. Others would also say that this is salvation related. But God was doing this very special thing for John. I don't think there's anybody else in the Bible who's, who's quite like this. But that's what God decided to do. Another question. Why was Zacharias rebuked for his question? Mary was not. I think there's a hand in the back. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. We can point to a number of things in this passage that show there's a difference between these two questions and there's a difference between these two situations. Uh, one, the angel makes clear that the root of Zechariah's question is unbelief. Because he says to him, this is going to be the sign to you because you did not believe. But we hear Mary by Elizabeth in verse 45, blessed is she who believed. So whatever differences in their situation, Mary believed, Zacharias didn't. Zacharias didn't fully believe. But we can also notice the difference between the wording of the two questions. Zacharias says, how will I know? Mary says, how can this be? So Mary was asking how, uh, as you were saying, Roy, how a virgin birth conception could be accomplished. While Zacharias knew how his miracle could be accomplished, but he wanted to know whether it would be accomplished. He wasn't asking how, he was just wondering if he could really be sure. Note that there is a precedent also for Zacharias' situation, as we noted, barren couples in the Old Testament, even Abraham and Sarah, they were able to have a kid because of God's miraculous work. But there's not been a precedent for what's going to happen with Mary. Never before has a child been born without a sexual union, without sexual input from another person. This is a unique situation. We could also point to Zacharias is a priest. He's an old, mature priest charged with obeying and teaching the scripture. And he certainly should have known better than to doubt the Lord's word regarding this situation with barrenness. It's the whole Old Testament to look at for that, especially the first five books. Mary was to know and obey scripture too, but her situation wasn't as culpable. And as Gabriel shows when he describes the sign he's giving to Zacharias, Gabriel acknowledges that his mere appearance and his delivery of his message to Zacharias was enough for belief. You don't need a sign, Zacharias, to believe. He gives a sign, and even Mary gets a sign unasked for, but the angel was to be enough. To get a message from God was to be enough to be believed. So certainly some differences in the situation, but ultimately, Zacharias was doubting. Mary doesn't seem to be doing that. She believed. And the question in what way was Mary favored by God? The angel emphasizes to her three times, the Lord's with you, you're highly favored, you have God's favor. How? In what way was Mary favored by God? Yes, Steve. Yeah, that's it right there. Yeah, this isn't like, oh, I'm giving you this thing because you've earned it by your own good works and your, and your own favorableness. No, he's saying, I'm doing this ring for you because I'm showing you unmerited favor. And what's this thing? You're going to bear the Son of God. You're going to bear the Messiah. So notice there's a direct connection between the first thing the angel announces and what comes afterwards. It says, Zacharias, your petition has been heard. You're going to have a son. What was the petition? It was about having a son. Mary, you're highly favored. How are you highly favored? You're going to bear a son. You're going to bear the Son of God. You're going to bear the Messiah. This was a great position of privilege. Mary's not a dispenser of grace by her good works. She's a receptacle of God's grace by his good work. And this grace was going to manifest itself in bearing the Messiah. There's no greater honor, no greater privilege, no greater joy than that. And if we just, we didn't read it, but if we go down to verse 46 and we look at the song that Mary declares to Elizabeth about her situation, it's all about, look at what the Lord has done for me. She understands that she has received the unmerited favor from God in, in being the one to bear the Messiah. And this connects with her attitude. What is Mary, man, Mary's attitude toward the revelation given her? Oh, that goes on the next slide. What kind of attitude is she displaying? 
When she says, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. What we're seeing is humble and grateful submission. She's submitting to the Lord's word. Now, as a young woman, pregnant out of official wedlock, even though betrothed, Mary was probably going to experience some derision from her own people, and perhaps even Joseph. Joseph doesn't understand. She risks having the marriage broken off or her being exposed to the community in which she would be stoned or at least shunned. But there's not a trace of fear, self-pity, or complaint in Mary. She simply is astounded that she, a no-name girl from Nazareth, was going to supernaturally bear the Son of God and King of Israel. What is a little suffering compared to the amazingness of what God was going to accomplish for her and for Israel? And we also see that in her song, starting in verse 46. We don't have time to look at it right now, but she's just glad. She's just amazed. She's not feeling bad for herself at all. You may have noticed that these announcements have a lot in common. Announcement to Zacharias, announcement to Mary. They're both an angel Gabriel. They both are in sudden appearances. They both initially cause fear. They both feature then reassurance. Both feature promises about a son to be born. Both feature promises about the greatness of that son. And both involve joy. But there are some important differences. John will be born to an old barren couple, but Jesus will be born of the Holy Spirit. John will turn people back to God, but Jesus will be the son of God. John will prepare the people for God, but Jesus will rule the kingdom of God forever. So when showing similarities, but also highlighting the differences, what does Luke emphasize about the relationship of John and Jesus? How do they compare? Yes, Roy. Okay, those things that you're saying are certainly all true, that there's a, we do see that there's a kind of like a, I almost want to say a merism. So a merism is when you see two extremes, you see two things, um, one extreme on one side, one extreme on the other side, but by highlighting them both, everything in between is counted. So we have a very old couple, a very young couple, woman, and they're both involved in God's redemptive plan. And that does connect with one of the themes of Luke, which is that um, salvation is for all people, women included. They're, they're a huge part of God's salvation plan. People who are outcasts of society, people who may be shamed otherwise, as even righteous Elizabeth and Zacharias were, as people who were barren. So there's that. And you also mentioned that they have some sort of uh, relationship by blood, Mary and Elizabeth. That's true. And they were both going to be used as part of God's redemptive plan for Israel. But those are highlighting some of the similarities between them. I want to ask more about the difference. What difference does, does Luke want us to understand between John and Jesus? Are you going to say something, Dwayne? That's also true. We have fulfillments of the Old Testament scripture, not um, certainly alluded to. The language is being used here. It doesn't take time to say, and this is in fulfillment of the scripture. As his audience becomes more familiar with scripture, they would have noticed that. But I'm just basically getting at a basic point here. Who's greater between the two? It's clearly Jesus. It's not that John's not great. <laughs> the angel says he will be great. John is great. But Jesus is greater. 
forerunner is great, but the one who's really great is the king, the son of God. They'll both be great, but Jesus is greater. Another question. Now we're getting uh, a little bit more complicated here. Why is it important for Jesus to be virgin born? A couple ways we can answer this. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I think those are both critical elements. We can at least point to three things. Or did you want to add something else, Ron? Can you say that again? Yeah, I think that's also true. Yeah, salvation is fully of God. As you were saying, Steve, one of the reasons why he must be virgin born is because that's fulfillment of prophecy. I do think you're right that it does connect with Genesis 3, and the announcement made to the woman after after the fall, it will be through the seed of the woman, or the seed of the woman will be opposed by the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now it's specifically the seed of the woman, not the seed of Adam. So that is a kind of an interesting difference, perhaps finding its fulfillment <coughs> specifically in the virgin birth. Matthew, or Isaiah 7 is more explicit that the Messiah is to be virgin born. So one of the reasons we need the virgin birth is fulfillment of prophecy. Also, even here in this passage, what does Gabriel say? He says, one of the effects of the child being born only of a virgin by the Holy Spirit is that he will be called the son of God. It's critical that he's virgin born to establish his identity. He really is the son of God. He really is God. And yet he also is human. You have to have both of those things. And that's only accomplished by the virgin birth. He is fully God, but he's fully human. But as you're also saying, Steve, and this connects with what you were saying, Rob, we need a second Adam. We need a second representative for humanity. Because otherwise, all humanity, even the son, son of God, who would come in Adam's line, would be polluted. Because the seed of Adam inherits what their head um, obtained for all of them, which is, for Adam, guilt and a sinful nature, since Adam... He was the head and representative of all those who came after him. If Jesus were born of Adam, how could he have avoided the imputed guilt and sinful nature that came from his forefather? So that's why to save mankind, a new Adam was necessary. A second Adam to establish a righteous line so that those who are born again in this Adam, in Jesus, would receive what Jesus imputes. That is life, righteousness, and salvation. They, those in the line of Jesus obtain a new head, a new representative, a new forefather in a sense. In Adam were the first fruits, the, the first real Adam, the first fruits of sin, guilt, and death for all his descendants. But in Jesus is the first fruits of righteousness, life, and resurrection for all his descendants for all his children. Paul describes it this way in the book of Romans. I'm just going to quote three verses from there. Romans 5, verses 12 and 13, and then verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Verse 17, Thrift by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, we had death and sin spread to all men through the one man, Adam. He was their head. He was their representative. He was their forefather. But Adam was a type. He corresponds to the one who was going to come, Jesus, second Adam. And through him, through this second one, there is abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, which reigns in life through Jesus Christ. So 
for at least three reasons. Yes, the virgin birth was quite necessary. It fulfilled prophecy. It's part of establishing the identity of the Son as both God and man. And it's part of establishing that second Adam that we all need in order to be saved. So virgin birth is quite necessary. You want to add something, Steve? Okay, yeah. Uh, so I guess from one perspective, he was the second man, but the last Adam. Yeah, there's not going to be another representative, not, not going to be another head other than Jesus. So that is true. He is the last Adam. All right, so now let's come to one final interpretation question. Why these announcements? These announcement narratives are not in the other Gospels. Luke has uniquely chosen to include this information. Why would he do that? Well, again, let's think about the differences between announcing something and not announcing something. If you get on the highway 287, let's say, it's the middle of the day, you find that traffic is at a standstill. You find yourself in this situation, what is your response? It's 287, middle of the day, traffic's at a standstill on the highway. What are you thinking? You're probably asking yourself, what's going on? This doesn't make sense. What happened? Was there an accident? Why is everything so slow? Of course, you may be also thinking, oh, this is terrible. But you don't understand what's going on. You want to know what is going on. Everything's different than normal. But you will have a very different response if you see a sign a month beforehand indicating that on a certain date, the road will experience construction that will severely limit traffic so on the day where you encounter this traffic, you're no longer surprised because you see that this inconvenience was all part of a larger what? It's all part of a larger plan. Plan. This is not random that traffic stopped on this day, or that traffic stopped on this day. It was planned. We knew that this was going to happen. There's a, there's a purpose, there's a plan that is undergirding what you experience. In the same way, by announcing beforehand what will happen, not just through the prophets in the Old Testament, but even via an angel, Gabriel, to Zacharias and Mary, what does God indicate about what is going to happen? It is all part of his plan. Everything that is about to happen is part of the plan of God. Now, as I've argued, Luke purposefully writes his gospel to show Gentile Christians that their inclusion in the gospel of faith in Christ has always been a part of God's plan. So here in Luke 1, Luke emphasizes that even before the birth of Jesus, or even before the birth of his forerunner, John, God's plan of salvation was proceeding exactly as God intended. And what kind of plan is this? What is this plan of salvation? Look at the responses of the people in this passage. It's an astounding plan. It's an amazing plan. No one could ever conceive of this plan. But God says, no, this is part of my plan. It's a joy-giving plan. There's going to be joy and gladness as part of this plan. It's also a humble, exalting plan. Zacharias, Elizabeth, they were shamed, but now they're going to be exalted by God. Mary, some no-name girl from Nazareth, she's being exalted by God. God has poured out favor on her. This is part of God's plan. This plan is going to exalt the humble. It's also going to shame the proud, which Mary goes on also to describe in her song. But it is a humble, exalting plan. We can even say, based on what Simeon says in Luke chapter 2, and we looked at that before, that this plan is a far-reaching plan. It includes the Gentiles, a light of salvation to the Gentiles and the glory of God's people Israel. This is God's plan. And it's such a great plan, such a good plan. What does it deserve from men? It deserves belief. It deserves belief. Isn't that one of the main themes of this passage? Zacharias, you didn't believe. You should have believed. Blessed Mary are you because you did believe. You ought to have believed. This is what God always planned to have happen. He's declared it to you. You've got to believe it. Believe in the good and never-changing gospel plan of God. 
This is for everybody. You can be old and be a priest. You can be a young virgin. Response required is the same. You've got to believe in God's plan and believe in God's Savior, the only Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. And we can draw out a few further applications from this. That's the way I want to close today. Three application questions for us to consider as we think about this whole passage and think about uh, think about its interpretation. This is all part of emphasizing God's salvation plan, his unchanging plan, his good plan, his plan that requires belief. We've got to ask, do we believe in God's exclusive salvation plan? God has never altered his plan, and neither must we alter it in the name of so-called love or tolerance or evangelism or wisdom. We're not allowed to alter this plan. This plan does not allow for other plans to coexist with it, nor can this plan be altered. There is no mountaintop with many ways. This is the plan. It is the only plan, and it is the good plan. Do we believe in God's salvation plan as he intended and revealed? Do we know what his plan is? Not just in saving us, but in what comes afterwards. Number two, if we say we believe in God's salvation plan, do we demonstrate belief? Do we demonstrate that we believe in God's salvation plan? Look at Mary. Mary sought to understand God's plan more, and after a little explanation, she humbly submitted to it. She became obedient. Do we do this? Do we submit to God's salvation plan? Do we present ourselves to God as Mary did, saying, Behold, the slave of the Lord. I am the slave of the Lord. God, do to me according to the plan you have revealed. I want to be submissive to this plan. If we say, Yes, I say that with Mary, does your life back it up? Does your life back up your words? Do you actually obey the different commands of God? Or of you, are Jesus' words true? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Have you, have I, let's all consider this together, have you marked out certain areas of exception in your life where you will not submit to God's plan for you? I'll submit to God's will for me in this area, but I just can't in this other one. God's just got to understand. Do you excuse yourself from submission to God's plan because you don't know what it is? Say, well, I would submit if I just knew what it was, but God hasn't revealed it. Do you not know that God has revealed his plan in the Bible? All that you need for your life is right there, both in what you should believe and what you should do. You don't need an angel to appear to you because God sent Jesus and he gave his revelation through Jesus and the apostles. You have all that you need. Do you demonstrate belief in God's salvation plan? And then finally, are you motivated by the greatness and gladness of God's salvation plan? You want to believe. You want to demonstrate that belief. But connected with all of that is a true and godly motivation. Luke very noticeably connects the coming of Jesus with joy. God's plan is connected with joy. What God has accomplished and what he will accomplish is amazing. But do you see that? Do we see that? One of the great lies of Satan is, as you know, that God's way is unhappy, it's hopeless, it's dismal. That is a lie. The opposite is true. God is the one who shows us the only way to lasting joy. His plan is intensely good. He cannot help but make it so because he is good. But if we want to experience that goodness, when you experience that glory, when you experience that happiness, we've got to let go of our worldly thinking. We have to let go of our idols. We can't tell God, I do believe your way is good because I believe that your way allows me to keep this sin. Nope. If we believe thus, we won't experience God's goodness. We won't experience the reward of God's plan. We must submit everything to the Lord. We must even submit what we believe will make us happy to the Lord. Say, God, I got to be informed by you, not by my own feelings, not by my own wisdom. I got to be informed by your word. Show me what is to make me happy. Let us not serve and intensely love that which is in the world, that which perishes. Nor should we look to God as some sort of cosmic genie to give us what we really want. Yes, God will serve you because you'll give me the things that I really want instead of you. 
nor should we see God as some cosmic thug to be placated so we can go back to what we really love. Oh, yeah, I've got to do this God thing, so get him off my back, and I can pursue what I really want. No, no, such attitudes will not experience God's reward, nor will they save from God's judgment. So we've got to ask ourselves, have we given up, both in our thinking and in our lives, that which is not part of God's good plan for us, for the sake of gospel joy? You know the words of the missionary martyr Jim Elliot. He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. Have you done that? Are you continually doing that? Pray that you are. Praise God for revealing his salvation plan to men and bringing it to pass. And yet it still will be brought to pass. May he fully accomplish it by bringing us to himself and establishing his kingdom on the earth. If you have other questions or comments, please email me. Next week, we look at the birth of Jesus itself, and I will be with you in person, Lord willing. Uh, we start our time back in New Jersey next week, and so it would be good to see you all. Let me close in prayer. God, I thank you for this word. Lord, it is one that we do need to rejoice in and we need to submit to. God, I pray that you would accomplish that work in us. We know we are responsible, but Lord, it is only by your power. God, help us to believe, help us to understand, help us to be overjoyed and amazed just as, just as these people were. Thank you so much for this salvation plan, this unchanging plan that included us, included Gentiles, included Jews, included all people. But it is only through the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the love that you showed through him. We pray, God, that we would be moved to greater love for him, greater belief, and demonstration of that belief in lives of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.